So, this is the second talk in our Big Questions series, and maybe it should have been the first one, because if there's one question that keeps coming up, it's this one. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? If there's a God, why does he allow it? Why doesn't he do something about it? So that's what we're going to think about this morning. Why do bad things happen? And in particular, why do they happen to good people? Because we, we can kind of understand, I think, why bad things might happen to bad people. Because to some extent that fits with our ideas about justice. Lots of movies have goodies and baddies, don't they? And most of us feel that justice is being done when the baddie gets what's coming to him even if he meets a gruesome end. Those kind of movies usually start with the baddie doing lots of really bad things to establish their bad guy credentials, so that when they do get what's coming to them, we all think that justice has been done. But the opposite is true when bad things happen to good people. That just doesn't seem right, because surely they don't deserve it. Justice and fairness seems to suggest that only good things should happen to good people. Now, of course, this isn't just a question that's, re a question that's relevant for Christians, but it is especially relevant for us because we believe that God is a God of love. So we have to figure out how to reconcile that with the evil and suffering that we see around us and that we experience and our friends and our family's experience. And I think that for most Christians, the way that they approach the answer to that is a combination of three things. One is the way that we think that God is involved with his creation today. How he interacts with this world and things that happen in this world. How much he controls things or just intervenes in things from time to time, like with answers to prayer. Two is what we believe God is like as a person, capital P, in his nature and character, the kinds of things that God does and doesn't do. And three is how we understand what the Bible has to say about this, which verses that we think are the most significant ones, the ones that we give priority to over others. I think that most answers that Christians come up with involve a combination of these three. And maybe it's the difficulty that we have in reconciling these three that leads to the questions that we've got and the dilemmas that we have. So let me start off by saying that the thing about big questions, the reason that they're called big questions, is because they're difficult questions. And difficult questions don't have easy answers. So we do ourselves no favours as Christians if we're not honest about that. You see, it's easy for us to think that for Christianity, be, Christianity to be credible for our unchurched friends and family, we have to have an answer for everything. But we don't. I think what loses us credibility is trying too hard to have answers when really we don't. So I'll be very honest with you, I'm not convinced that there is a good answer to this question. If Lynn and I look at our lives, for example, there's been good things for which we're very grateful. 
but also bad things where we just don't know why. Why did we have a child who's disabled? Why did we have a grandson who died three weeks after he was born? Why did Lynn's grandmother die peacefully at the age of 96, but her sister died painfully at the age of 40? Why was my father miraculously healed of polio as a child when a man came up to his parents on a Cumbrian beach and said, if you take your boy into the water now, Jesus will heal him? And he did. But why did my father never tell me that story before he died? It was my aunt who told me years later, just before she died. Why did I have a stroke on the Saturday evening before our very first Sunday as senior pastors of Ellsbury Vineyard? Why did I survive it when lots of other people have strokes and don't survive? All of these questions we simply don't know. However, just because we can't say everything doesn't mean that we can't say anything. We may not have the answer, but maybe we can say some things that are part of an answer. So that is what I want to try to do this morning. I don't expect everything that I say to be persuasive. You may think some things are trite and some are trivial, and that's fine. But maybe some will be helpful. So, ten brief thoughts. Way better value than a three-point sermon. So thought number one is actually more of a negative thought. It's something that I personally think is not part of the answer. But I know that it's something that many Christians have been told and many do find helpful, so I wanted to include it. So if you personally find it helpful, then please carry on with it. Don't let me be putting you off. Because he is all-powerful, God controls everything that happens in this world every single detail of our lives and events. Like in The Wizard of Oz, he's the man behind the curtain, the machine operator pulling all the levers and flicking all the switches. And this is basically the Calvinist view that they call meticulous sovereignty. We might call it micromanagement. The Calvinist view gives God the credit for everything. So everything that happens, good or bad, is because God wills it. Calvinists feel that if we don't give him that level of credit, then it somehow diminishes his status as Almighty God, who is, of course, allowed to do whatever he pleases without having to explain himself to us. But the cost of upholding God's sovereignty in that way is that it makes him directly responsible for all of the evil and suffering in this world, every murder, every abuse, every rape, and every natural disaster. John Piper doesn't hold back on that in his take on genocide in the Old Testament. He says it's right for God to slaughter women and children any time he pleases. God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. Now, you may say, well, I'm glad that we're not Calvinists. But the Calvinism of people like Piper and Tim Keller is one of the influences on our kind of evangelicalism. Maybe you're familiar with the Matt and Beth Redman song, Blessed Be Your Name. We sang it the other week. One of the verses is, Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. 
Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. And then the bridge says, you give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Now you can see where they're coming from here. And even more so because I believe that they wrote this song from a place of very personal pain after a series of miscarriages. That phrase, you give and take away, is from Job 1.21 in the Old Testament, where Job is also struggling to see God in his loss and his pain. But the song is really about choosing to love and trust God, whatever happens in life, rather than endorsing Calvinism. Thought number two. The downside of a creation in which God gives us free will, in other words, the freedom to choose how we act and how we live, is that many things will happen that are not as he would want them to be. Freedom comes with a price. R.H. Tawney said, freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. Now, we may like the idea of God intervening to stop everything bad happening in principle, but whose checklist of bad things would God follow? Now, some things are obvious, of course, but... What level of badness would he intervene? Cut fingers? Bruises? Colds and flu? Swear words? Buying a lottery ticket? Too many beers one night? How many trillions of times a day would God be intervening and stopping things happening across the whole world? How much of our personal freedom would we be wanting God to be interfering with? Now, the government has announced that driverless cars will be available in the UK within the next year. So soon, it will be possible for every bit of our car journey to be controlled by artificial intelligence. But I wonder whether we want every bit of our life journey to be controlled like that, even if it is by divine intelligence. That would really test our willingness to submit the whole of our life to the Lordship of Jesus, would it not? Now, my Peugeot 308 car is not very posh, but it has something that's called active lane keeping assistance. What that means is, if I'm driving on a dual carriageway and I begin to drift outside the lane... As the manual puts it, it corrects the trajectory of the vehicle. It takes control of the steering wheel and it steers it back inside the lines. And it helps keep us safe. But do we really want God to be correcting our trajectory in life like that? Taking control when we are drifting outside the lane. Steering us back inside the white lines. Thought number three. Just because God chooses not to control everything does not mean that he's not in control of anything. An omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God, all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful, can be in charge of whatever he likes. But he picks his targets. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, God says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The beginning and end of what, you may ask? Of the big story and of our story. So he's in charge of the beginning and the end of the journey 
and all of the waypoints on the journey. They happen when he says that they will. So creation, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, King David, the coming of the Messiah, the sending of the Holy Spirit, and bringing about the new heavens and the earth, and loads of stuff in between. Romans 5, 6 tells us that Jesus came and died for us at just the right time. You see, the way in which God has chosen to engage with this world and with us is a combination of that which is fixed, the eternal will of God, and that which is flexible, the free will that we have as human beings. So the difference between evil spirits and the Holy Spirit is that it's evil spirits that possess and dictate and control. But the Holy Spirit partners and invites. Galatians 5.25 says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us choose to keep in step with the Spirit. And we do that by listening to the Holy Spirit well, knowing Scripture well, and understanding God's nature and character well. The reason that the Bible tells us to do certain things and to choose certain things is because God doesn't make everything happen. Now, of course, he has plans and purposes for us. And of course, he wants the best for us. But the way in which he's chosen to engage with us means that in sat-nav terms, he has to do quite a lot of rerouting. But thankfully, the will of God for our lives is a broad highway, not a narrow tightrope. When we drive to Sutton, my sat-nav always offers me several different routes to get there. And God has even more routes to get to where he wants to go to achieve his will and purposes, which you may think is just as well when he's working with people like us. Thought number four. When we ask God why bad things happen, we have to accept that sometimes we are part of the problem. We shouldn't blame God that millions of people are starving when the world God made is easily able to produce more than enough to feed everyone. We shouldn't blame God for homelessness when there are more than enough spare bedrooms to house everyone. One of the downsides of God having created us with the freedom to make choices is that it allows us to make bad choices, including choosing to live our lives selfishly at times. The bad things in this world are not just the fault of those really bad people. I quoted Solzhenitsyn last week when he said that the line between good and bad doesn't run between groups of people, the the us and the them. It runs through every single one of us. And over time, he said, that line moves around. Thought number five. This why question is not a new one. Throughout the Bible, we see people asking the same question. If the Bible says that it's okay to have questions about why bad things happen, and why God allows them, and where God is when they do, then we are allowed to ask as well. One of the longest books in the Bible, the book of Job, is about nothing but those questions. 
One third of the Psalms, which is the songs and the poems of the Old Testament, are cries of the heart that come from anguish and pain and asking God why. They're called laments. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations. This is a lament. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction. I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. And the person who's saying this is the mighty King David who defeated Goliath. That song, Blessed Be Your Name, is really a lament. So a lament is saying it's okay to respond to what happens in life with normal human emotions. We are not supposed to deny the reality. Feeling grief and responding emotionally is in no way a lack of spirituality. We're not letting God down and we're not a failure as a Christian when we feel that way. It's part of being authentically human. And it's Jesus who is our assurance for that. Because as well as being fully God, he was fully human. In the lead up to the cross in Mark chapter 14, it says that Jesus was deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow. The shortest verse in the Bible is John 11:35. Jesus wept. And the reason that he wept was because his friend had just died. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Now, God hadn't, of course, because God has never forsaken anyone. It's not in his nature to do that. But for Jesus, it felt like that. And it's natural for us to feel that at times too. So don't deny the reality when you feel like that. Find Jesus in the reality, because he knows how it feels. It's why one of the names of the Holy Spirit who Jesus sent to be with us is the Comforter, because we need his comfort. And we always have done. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 8.18, Jeremiah says, You are my comforter in sorrow. Thought number six. Even though bad things are never good, and they're never God, he can make them work together for good. You see, there's a, a big difference between saying God makes bad things happen, and God can make good come out of them. Romans 8.28 says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Notice that it doesn't say that all things are good in themselves. It says that in all things, God is working for our good. So keep on loving him. Keep on inviting him in. And keep on trusting him to work good from it. Come, Holy Spirit, into my hurt and my suffering and my wondering why and even my doubting. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says that as well as a time for laughing, there's also a time for weeping. As well as a time for dancing, there's also a time for mourning. When bad things happen, we're allowed to weep 
and allowed to mourn. There's a time for it. So allow your tears to come, but also allow God to come. Psalm 30 says, you've turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You've taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy. And that is what he always wants to do for us. But give it time. Thought number seven. We have a choice as to how we respond when bad things happen. We reach a junction in the road and we have to decide which way to turn. Do we turn to bitterness and anger away from God because he allowed it to happen? Or do we turn to God? Do we fill in the gaps in what we don't understand with trust and faith in who God is and what God is like? That he loves us and cares for us and that he feels our pain. In that verse we just read from Romans, the Apostle Paul was saying, I know that in all things God is working for my good. So how does he know that? He only knows it because his heart is telling him that. And he's chosen to believe it. And he's chosen to hang on to it when bad things happen. Okay, who likes detective dramas? Death in Paradise? Silent Witness? Scooby-Doo? Hey. But let me tell you, box sets are no friend of the gospel. They are way too addictive. Anyway, there's this story in which the detective is investigating something really bad that's happened. And he's faced with a dilemma because all of the evidence so far makes everyone assume that a certain person must have been responsible. But the detective knows that person really well. So he is convinced in his heart that his friend couldn't possibly have done this thing. There must be more to it, more information that he hasn't yet discovered. So he keeps asking questions, he keeps working on it and keeps trusting in what he knows his friend is really like. And then eventually what, what happened and why all comes to light and it all begins to make sense. That friend who he always believed the best of was proven not to have done it. When bad things happen to us, do we have that kind of faith? Do we know our friend that well? Well enough to say that we don't have all the information yet, not in this life. But we do know that God couldn't possibly have done this thing because that is not what he is like. Thought number eight. We need to work backwards from the future to the present. We have to look to the end of the big story to make sense of where we are in our story, the place that we are at right now. And in theology speak, that is called an eschatological perspective. That's our big word of the day, eschatological, which simply means looking backwards from how everything is going to end. Why do they need that word, you may think? I have no idea. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to suffering himself. If you read 2 Corinthians 11, you'll see exactly what I mean. 
But in that very same letter, he can say this. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, Paul is not trivializing anyone's suffering. The reason that he says that is because he's looking backwards from the perspective of eternity. You see, our troubles today are all that we can see right now. So it's understandable that they fill our thoughts. But ultimately, only a perfect future, promised by a perfect God, makes sense of an imperfect present. Two to go. Thought number nine. In Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad things that happen in our world. No other religion believes in a God who would lower himself to do that. Dorothy Sayers says this. Whatever reason God chose to make people as they are, suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He himself has gone through the whole human experience, from family life and hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. Jesus did not come just to share in the nice bits of being human. He also came to share in the suffering of being human. And the Jewish people were suffering a lot back then because Israel was occupied by the Roman legions. And everyone was saying, what have we done to deserve this? Doesn't God love us? Why doesn't he do something about it? And understandably, they they wanted, they were waiting for a Messiah who would lead an army and overthrow the Romans. But the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be was the one prophesied by Isaiah. Despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And by his wounds we are healed. Somehow... The suffering of the cross is a place of healing. Our healing comes from his wounding. The cross was not about God telling us what to believe, but showing us the kind of God that we believe in. One who took our pain and bore our suffering. By his wounds we are healed. And then finally, thought number 10. And it's no accident that in the very last verse of the very last chapter of the story of Jesus' life in Matthew's Gospel, this is the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. It's no accident and it's no surprise because God had been saying that all the way through the big story. For example, Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, God doesn't always promise outcomes. He doesn't always promise that everything will be fine. But he does promise himself. 
he does promise that he will be with us. It's a bit like when a child is scared about doing something and they say to their mummy or daddy, will you come with me? And the answer from Jesus is always, yes, I will. And you know that Jesus asks us to be a part of that, you and me, to be a part of his presence with people, to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15, and to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Which is why we so encourage everyone to be part of a small group, a place where we can be doing that for others and we can be receiving that for ourselves. Matt, maybe you and the band could come and join me. Thank you. While they're doing that, while they're plugging things in, um, let me quickly run through those ten thoughts one last time. The first one works for many Christians, so if it works for you, as I said, that's great. But I personally think we can do better without diminishing God's greatness. The downside of a creation in which God gives us free will is that many things will happen that are not as he would want them to be. Just because God chooses not to control everything does not mean he's not in control of anything. He picks his targets, especially the waypoints in the big story and the waypoints in our story. When we ask God why bad things happen, we have to accept that sometimes we are part of the problem. The why question is not a new one. Throughout the Bible, we see people asking that same question. They were allowed to, and we are allowed to. Even though bad things are never good and they're never God, he can make them work together for good. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I can't feel it, you're working as the song says. We have a choice as to how we respond when bad things happen. Do we keep on trusting what we know about what our friend is really like? We need to work backwards from the future to the present. We have to look to the end of the big story to make sense of where we are in our story. In Jesus, God himself came to personally experience the bad things that happen in our world so he understands and maybe finally the most important of all Jesus says I will be with you always to the very end of the age he doesn't always promise outcomes but he does always promise himself